Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Let us listen now for God's word to us. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that who that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. So like many... When our first daughter, our first child, Maya, was born, Mary and I were a bit consumed by the whole parenthood thing, right? Especially leading up to it. You know, we, we were first-time parents, and like many first-time parents, we could be a bit um, neurotic or obsessive at times, and one of us a, a bit more than the other. <clears throat> that was me, you know, everything was baby-proofed, right? We had all sorts of weird baby gadgets, many of which I don't think I would even recognize now or remember what they were supposed to do. Uh, we made most of her baby food from only organic fruits and vegetables, and you know, we were dead set on never letting a single you know, drop of sugar touch her taste buds for at least like a year or so. And we even tried cloth diapers for a little while, which are a wonderful idea to, to cut down on diaper waste, but our kind of a pain and are really pretty gross. There's no easy way to clean a cloth diaper. And of course, being new parents who had no clue what they were doing, because let's be honest, none of us ever really do, operating on such little sleep didn't really help either. You know, on those weird rare occasions that she would sleep for more than three hours at a time, Mary would wake up in a, in a frenzy and, and you know, smack me and wake me up and make me go into the bedroom and check on her to make sure she was still breathing, right? I'm sure many of you can relate to those types of feelings, those experiences. 
And then, of course, there's all those benchmarks that babies are supposed to all meet at exactly the same time in exactly the same way, or else the rest of their lives will you know, be completely ruined, right? You have all those growth charts, and oh, well, she was 50% you know, this month, and then now she's 45%, and what does that mean? You know? And if she doesn't roll over by six months, then how is she going to crawl by 12 months? And if she doesn't do that, then who knows when she'll learn to walk, and then she'll never learn to potty train, and then she'll have to go to preschool you know, much later than the other kids, and then you know, she, she'll never go to college, and she's never going to move out because she won't get a good job, and she'll resent us for the rest of her life, right? These are the fears of exhausted parents, especially first-time parents. A lot of that goes away with, with the other ones, right? <laughs> it can all be a bit stressful. So it's important for a young parent to be reminded that not all kids are the same, right? That some kids develop differently than others do, and chances are that even if your child isn't rolling over at six months, that she will learn to go poo-poo on the potty before she graduates high school, right? So we need to take a deep breath sometimes. And come to find out, many of those benchmarks that are so important, uh, at least we think they're, supposed, they're so important, uh, many of those benchmarks uh, are not as important as we have been led to believe, right? So, like, for instance, Maya never actually crawled. She, she did this really awesome thing where she would just kind of scoot on her butt, you know, she would move her legs to one side and then the other, and she could kind of get wherever she wanted pretty quickly, and it was, it was hilarious, it was adorable. But of course, we asked our pediatrician, you know, should we be concerned that she's not crawling? And the pediatrician kind of laughed at us, and no, of course not. She's, she's getting where she needs to be. And You know, the, many pediatricians don't even consider that a benchmark anymore because uh, a lot of kids are doing weird things like Maya did, or uh, some will just go straight to walking, skip the crawling altogether. So surprise, surprise, there's no one-size-fits-all when it comes to childhood development, just like there's no one-size-fits-all when it comes to parenting. Every child is unique, and so is every parent. And we all kind of know this, I think, intuitively, or at least we learn this. But I wish that sometimes we would remember those same lessons when it comes to faith, when it comes to our individual faith journeys, that, that there is no one-size-fits-all approach that we each have our own individual journeys that will probably look a bit different from each other. And that's okay. In fact, it's actually quite beautiful. I was recently at an event where this preacher was giving this sermon about you know, the power of Jesus and how he had been saved from a life of sin and became a completely new person, just like that, right? Just by asking Jesus into his life. And he knew and he felt the exact moment that Jesus had come into his life and changed everything. And right up to that point, it was, it was really quite lovely, right? It was personal. It was true. This beautiful story of redemption and transformation. And then he said, if you don't know the exact moment that Jesus came into your life and changed everything, then you're not a real Christian. I thought, really? I mean, you know, I've, I've gone to church basically my whole life. I went through confirmation. I was baptized. I've asked Jesus into my life more times than I can count. I even went forward on a few of those altar calls, right? Prayed the sinner's prayer, did all that kind of stuff. But how am I to know which one of those really did it, right? Which one worked? Were any of them effective? Because every time I asked Jesus into my life, I still felt like basically me. I didn't necessarily feel completely different. And, and this was actually a huge struggle for me as a young Christian because Paul says that if, if anyone is in Christ, that they are a new creation. 
but oftentimes I didn't necessarily feel new. I mean, I, I still had the same struggles. I still had the same doubts. I still had the same shortcomings as before. Only now I felt slightly more empowered by the love and the grace of Jesus Christ to be able to do something about them. But maybe the problem all along was that I wasn't really a Christian. I don't think so, right? And that it's, it's times like this that are exactly why I'm so thankful for people like Nicodemus. Nicodemus wasn't one of the 12. He's not one of the names that we immediately remember when it comes to the followers of Christ. He didn't have a remarkable conversion experience. He didn't drop his fishing nets and follow Jesus immediately. He wasn't blinded on the road to Damascus. He didn't hear a booming voice call out to him. He came to Jesus at night while it was dark because he was a Pharisee and he was afraid of what his fellow Pharisees might think about him coming to talk to this, this new guy. And he came with questions. Now he was convinced that there was something special about Jesus because of the signs that he performed. And he knew that no one could do such signs apart from the presence of God. And then he and Jesus have this odd conversation where they, they kind of seem to be talking past each other, right? As if, as if each doesn't quite get what the other is saying. And it all starts because Nicodemus misunderstands this, uh, this pun that Jesus uses. He tells Nicodemus that in order to see the kingdom of God, he must be born from above. And then Nicodemus goes into this weird thing about the absurdity of going back into your mother's womb to be born again, and how can you do that, right? But, but interestingly, the Greek word that's used there can either mean from above or again. So Jesus tells Nicodemus he needs to be born from above. But Nicodemus thinks he's telling him that he needs to be born again, like literally again. So this whole misunderstanding is, is a bit humorous, right? Because Nicodemus just completely misunderstands. But perhaps what's even more interesting is that Jesus never seems to clear up that confusion. He never smooths out the misunderstanding. He could have cleared the whole thing you know, whole thing up very simply with just kind of a point of the finger, right? Like, no, from above, right? That's what I'm talking about. But instead, they have this long conversation that leaves Nicodemus probably even more confused than when they first met. And it's interesting that, you know, this verse, John 3.16, the verse that we all know and love so well, is right smack in the middle of this really perplexing conversation. And strangely, it's a conversation that has... Uh, really no resolution. Nicodemus just kind of disappears from the scene. He simply fades away and we are left to wonder, you know, what became of him? Did he ever figure out what Jesus meant by being born from above? And why did Jesus just let him walk away? Why not grab him and say, wait, wait, wait listen, listen, this, this is what I mean. This is what I'm getting at. You know, don't walk away just yet. But he does walk away and we're left to wonder about him. But there is good news, because Nicodemus doesn't disappear completely. He shows up again in chapter 19, after Jesus' crucifixion. It is he and Joseph of Arimathea who go to claim the body of Jesus and to prepare his body for burial, according to Jewish custom. And Nicodemus brings with him this insane amount of spices, about 100 pounds worth, which would be far, far more than you would ever need to, to prepare for any one body. So we're left to wonder again, well, what, 
What's, what does this mean? What's the significance of that? Did Nicodemus finally come around? Did he, did he become a follower after all? Is this his way of showing his devotion to Jesus? So when he first came to Jesus, it was in secret. It was at night, under the cover of night. But here he is again, doing, shows up again, and this, and this time, he's doing something rather public. He's procuring a body from a Roman official and preparing it for burial. Now, Nicodemus' journey wasn't quite like that of the other disciples. He didn't, again, he didn't have this dramatic, life-changing moment, this one thing that he could point to and say, that's when it all turned around. But when things went down, when the rubber met the road, and the disciples fled and were in hiding, Nicodemus was there, along with Joseph of Arimathea, asking Pontius Pilate, the one who just oversaw the execution for Jesus' body. So while Peter was denying that he ever knew Jesus, and while the other disciples were hiding behind locked doors, Nicodemus was publicly exposing himself to Pilate and potentially many others, exposing himself as one who not only knew Jesus, but one who cared enough about him to make sure that his body was prepared according to Jewish custom. We all have different and unique faith experiences. Each of us has our own story to tell. And each story has its own beauty, not because it's the story of how God has come to us, how we have been found by the irresistible love and grace of God. Personal stories of radical transformation are beautiful and should be celebrated. Everyone loves, you know, a good prodigal son tearjerker. But equally beautiful are the stories of those who, perhaps by grace, haven't quite experienced the extreme peaks and extreme valleys. Stories that remind us of God's constancy and God's sustenance. Stories like that of Nicodemus that remind us that some of us walk the path a bit differently, even a bit more slowly. Some of us need a bit more time to figure things out. We have a few more questions that need to be answered. Stories that remind us that however we get there, in the end, it's all grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace. You have a story to tell. A story to tell of God's grace in your life. It may not be a story like Peter's. It may not be like Paul's. It may not even be like Nicodemus's, but it is your story. It's the story that God has given you. The story of how God's grace found you. It's your story to tell. And Jesus asks us, as we leave this place, to tell that story. To, like Nicodemus, show up, even when it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Even when we're left thinking, how can these things be? Tell your story that God has given you. Amen.